Chapter 7 of The Amethyst Cross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Amethyst Cross by Fergus Hume. Chapter 7. Had George been more of a man of the world, he would have wholly mistrusted Maud and would have declined her invitation to meet him in the picture gallery in the small hours of Sunday morning. He would not have been credited by a judge of human nature that one woman would make such an appointment with the man she loved to plead the cause of her rival, or to give a helping hand to bring about a marriage which was dead against the feelings of her heart. But George, in spite of his years and virile looks, was an unsophisticated man who could not guess what was below the surface. He was a kind of society tenderfoot, and perhaps this, in some measure, constituted his charm in the eyes of Miss Ellis, who had experience enough to fit out a dozen men and at least two women. At all events, although he wondered that her liking for him, as he termed it, had lapsed so suddenly, yet he determined to keep the appointment and to listen to any scheme which she might propose, likely to accomplish the marriage with Lesbia. In this way are strong men twisted to feminine purposes by women, and from Samson downwards no man has been sufficiently cunning to get the better of his Delilah. There was, therefore, some excuse for George. His attention was drawn from his own thoughts by a lively discussion going on between Mr. Tate and three or four ladies, with a sprinkling of men. As it was now long after midnight, some people had retired to bed, and others were preparing to follow. But Tate was a night bird who liked to stay up as long as possible, probably because, as a robber of widows and orphans, his pillow must have had its thorns. To entertain those guests who remained wakeful, and especially the feminine portion thereof, he mentioned that he had lately come into possession of some wonderful jewels, which a famous, or rather infamous, demi-mundane of Paris had sold. Of course, the ladies were more than anxious to see these gems, both on account of their beauty and value, and because of the celebrity of their former owner. They, one and all, clamored for a sight of them, and as Mr. Tate had purposely stimulated their curiosity to keep them from retiring, he was not unwilling to gratify their wish. He therefore led the way to the picture gallery and pointed out a small narrow door at the end of it. "'There is my safe,' he said proudly or rather, my strong room. Queer place for a safe, drawled Sergeant, with a shrug. And for that reason, the safer. We are all friends here, Tate glanced round graciously, and look more like a Silenus than ever, so I do not mind revealing the whereabouts of twenty thousand pounds worth of jewels. But no thief would dream that my safe was here. And even if he did, added the stockbroker, drawing out his watch-chain, the safe cannot be opened save by this key. But it might be broken open, George ventured to remark. Tate laughed in a jolly manner. It would take the cleverest thief in London to break into my safe, and there are only two keys to open it. I have one on my watch chain, and Maud, my niece, has the other. The guests looked at one another. Had not Tate been flushed with wine and excitement, he would not have been thus free in his speech and he was not a man who talked at large as a rule. But the lateness of the hour, the presence of many people, the lights, the music, the gambling, the wine, and the chatter, 
had unloosened his usually cautious tongue. Maud frowned when her uncle spoke so rashly, as she thought that he was a fool to do so. Certainly there was no one present who would have broken open the safe, since everyone was respectable, even if, as the word goes, rackety. All the same, the revelation of the whereabouts of the safe, and the information so guidelessly supplied was risky, to say the least of it. Miss Ellis shook her head at her venturesome uncle. "'Don't say too much,' she remarked in a low voice. "'Even this safe may not be strong enough to withstand the burglar of the new school.' "'Well, I don't care,' cried the stockbroker recklessly, inserting his key into the lock. "'My jewels are insured. "'Come, ladies, you can all feast your eyes, and, as I have bought the gems to sell them again, I am open to an offer.' He said this jokingly, yet meant to sell if he could. Some of the guests drew back rather annoyed, as they thought that Mr. Tate was going too far in importing city manners into his house party. Maud, ever watchful, again whispered to her uncle, but he shook her off, and entered the strong room, now open, to bring out the jewels. When the box which contained them was placed on a near table, and the contents were displayed, all thoughts of Tate's bad manners disappeared in amazement and delight at the sight of the precious stones. These were truly beautiful. Many were set in tiaras, bracelets, rings, chains, lockets, and in various ornaments for the hair and corsage. But other stones lay loose and glittering, to be arranged and used as required. There were diamonds, sapphires, rubies, emeralds, and many inferior gems, the whole forming a dazzling heap, which made every mouth water with avarice. But for Tate's estimate, those present, and some were good judges of jewels, would have deemed the radiant pile worth twice the amount mentioned. "'Try them on, ladies,' said the genial stockbroker. "'Try them on. We are all friends here.' And he placed a tiara on the head of his niece, who stood near with a frown on her face." she began to think that her uncle was crazy to display his wealth in this reckless manner. In a few moments, some of the female guests were glittering with jewels and surveying themselves delightedly in hand-mirrors, which had been brought by Tate's order. The stockbroker himself, with a cynical smile, looked at their avaricious faces and listened with staring pleasure to the delighted little screams which they gave at intervals. Jewels have a much greater effect on women than on men, and there was not a woman present but would have gone to great lengths for the sake of possessing even one of the ornaments. Gretchen was not the only woman who could be lured by the glitter of gems, which is so much superior to the mere gleam of gold, and Tate, amidst this splendor, looked more like mammon than ever. But this early hours of the morning pleasure came to an end in fifteen minutes, and the ladies, taking off the jewels, restored them to their owner. Tate was really glad to get them back, and counted them carefully, for the look in the eyes of some of the ladies actually frightened him, and he half thought that they would run away with the treasures. However, he made sure that every one of the ornaments had been given back, and replaced them in the box which he deposited in the safe. After that, the guests went to bed, and the gallery with the strong room carefully locked, was left in silence and darkness. But the sleep of many was disturbed by the thought of that nibling's treasure, so near at hand, 
and yet so impossible to obtain. George was indifferent to the gems, as he thought that Lesbia's eyes were brighter and much more beautiful. He left the gallery while Tate was displaying his horn, and retired to the very comfortable bedroom which Maud's care had provided. As a mere clerk, he should not have had such luxurious surroundings, or, indeed, have been in the splendid house at all, but she loved him and could not do enough for him. Therefore, George was housed like a king, and, after the manner of youth, took his comforts easily. It never occurred to him that in the humble position he had no right to be pampered and petted. By right of good looks and delightful manners, he had hitherto gone through the world very much spoiled by the fair sex. He therefore took everything as his right. While waiting for three to strike from the stable clock, it was now two, he seated himself before the fire and, lighting a pipe, gave himself up to dreams of Lesbia. In one way or another, he was determined to make her his wife, but it was difficult to see how he proposed to keep her on his small salary, particularly when much of that same salary was required to support his mother. But that George indulged in the rosy dreams of youth and had such a profound belief in the kindness of fortune, he would have dismissed his proposed marriage as an impossibility. Hale was against it, and so was Sargent. His mother did not approve of the marriage, and there was Maud Ellis to be considered. A more hopeful man may well have been despondent, but not George. He felt sure that everything would come right, and that life was a fairy tale in which the fated prince, who was himself, carried off the lovely princess who, of course, was Lesbia. And she was in an enchanted castle, so he glorified Rose Cottage, watched by two dragons, Canning and Mrs. Petty, but helped also by a faithful dwarf by name Tim Burke. Finally, there was Mr. Hale as the wicked magician to be reckoned with, and perhaps Maud might act as the malignant fairy, but somehow the marriage would be brought about and in some way sufficient money would be provided, so that the prince and princess could live happily ever afterwards. Lesbia would not have thought, in this comfortable fashion, in the face of such obstacles as barred the way to the altar. But then she was much more practical than her lover, in spite of the fact that she dwelt in seclusion, while he battled in the workaday world. And then, as George fondly imagined he had discovered a few hours previously, Maud Ellis was not the wicked fairy after all. Rather was she about to play the agreeable part of the fairy godmother and bring together two lovers parted by adverse circumstances. When Maud afterwards thought of the trust George placed in her, she wondered at his folly and had a contempt for his upright character that could estimate human nature so highly. But George never doubted for one moment that the appointment was made in all good faith and for the express purpose of helping his suit with Lesbia. He therefore waited impatiently for the striking of the clock. Only once did it cross his mind as odd that Maud should choose that hour and that meeting place to forward his interests, since she could easily have spoken to him in a convenient place and at a becoming hour in the morning. But he brushed this thought aside as unworthy of her kind heart, and when the hour of three chimed out, he opened his door softly and slipped out to keep his appointment. George had stayed so frequently at the Henley Mansion that he knew his way to the picture gallery exceedingly well. Also, 
it was mr tate's hobby to have the corridors and many of the rooms lighted in a subdued manner all night it prevented burglary he declared and certainly the sight of an illuminated house would daunt those who prefer to work in darkness or only by the light of a bull's-eye george therefore found himself in a soft glow when he emerged from the bedroom and stole on tiptoe towards the head of the stairs here he descended and took his way towards the back of the house to the picture gallery this portion of the great mansion was not lighted which seemed odd remembering what mr tate said about light scaring burglars and seeing also that the safe was placed here but whatever was the stockbroker's whim george found the long gallery in darkness and as he entered by a door placed directly in the middle of it he halted there doubtfully he could see no light save what filtered through the skylights and did not know where maud waited for him at the far end of the gallery were double glass doors leading down steps into the gardens these were usually shuttered at night but george noted with some surprise by the gleam of the starlight which came through them that on this special night the shutters had not been put up this was strange considering the valuables which were concealed in the safe but then as the young man reflected it was also strange that tate should place his treasure house at the other end of the gimcrack gallery which could be so easily broken into but after all on the authority of post hale of the purloined letter the more unlikely a place in which valuables are hidden the safer they are not one of the london fraternity of thieves would believe that the wary stockbroker would be so foolish as to place his safe or strong-room or treasure-house or whatever he liked to call it in such a locality therefore no creature of the night would come to rob there was considerable method in tate's apparent madness after all but george had scanty time for such reflections as the hours were swiftly moving towards dawn and he yet had to converse with maud his eyes grew more accustomed to the semi-darkness of the gallery and he glanced up and down to see if he could espy the darker form of the girl at this moment he heard the clink of metal upon metal the sound came from the direction of the strong-room and as he turned his gaze there too he suddenly saw a vivid stream of light proceeding apparently from a bull's-eye in a flash it struck him that the strong-room was being burgled and almost without thinking he uttered a loud cry and sprang forward to lay hands on the thieves the light disappeared as he raced up and when with immeasurable distance of the safe he stumbled over a body motionless on the floor it was that of a woman as walker could tell by the draperies he mechanically clutched in his fall before he could pick himself up two dark forms dashed past him towards the glass doors george anxious only to lay hands on the thieves ran down the gallery at their heels and left the woman where she was. The intruders easily opened the double doors, which evidently had been left ajar. George followed, and saw two men race across the lawn, and into the belt of trees which girdled Mr. Tate's mansion. As he increased his speed, he shouted loudly for assistance. By and by, lights were seen moving in the upper windows of the great house, and into the corridors poured many guests and servants, all in various stages of undress and all scared by the midnight alarm tate with a dressing-gown thrown hastily over his burly form pushed his way through the throng down the stairs and the guests streamed after him everyone knew what was the matter for a wakeful servant had heard the shout of 
thieves and the ominous word had hastily passed from lip to lip i expect my jewels are gone panted tate waddling towards the gallery at the head of a picturesque mob in a second the electric lights were turned on and the gallery blazed with light tate uttered a cry of alarm which was echoed by those behind him and there was cause for surprise the door of the strong-room stood wide open and some distance away lay the insensible body of Maud Ellis, dressed in the attire she had worn during the previous evening. While some of the ladies attended to the girl, Tate, with surprising agility, plunged into the strong-room, and then they heard him bellow bull-like in mingled rage and astonishment. A moment later he emerged. "'The jewels are gone! The jewels are gone!' he shouted, purple with wrath. "'Here, some of you, go to Henley for the police.' "'Search the grounds, examine the house, and—' "'The doors are open, sir,' cried a footman. "'The thieves must have escaped. "'After them, after them,' bellowed Tate in a frenzy of rage. "'Your niece, man, your niece,' said a gentleman who was supporting the unconscious Miss Ellis. "'But Tate only swore the more. "'Confound my niece. I have lost twenty thousand pounds worth of jewels.' "'Several people looked disgusted at this callousness.' A young doctor, who was stopping in the house, and who was feeling Maud's pulse, looked up. "'Miss Ellis has been chloroformed,' he remarked quietly. Tate bent down and lightly touched the gold chain which was round the girl's neck. "'The key of the strong-room is gone,' he cried furiously. "'No doubt,' explained the medical man. "'Miss Ellis has been rendered insensible, and then was robbed of the key. "'But who?' "'How did Maud come to be here at this hour?' demanded Tate savagely. "'Go for the police, some of you,' he shouted, stamping furiously. "'I'm not going to lose a fortune in this way.' "'It's useless. The thieves have escaped,' cried a voice at the end of the gallery, and George bounded in at the open door. "'Walker!' cried the stockbroker, recoiling. "'What are you doing here? What do you know about this?' "'I came downstairs and heard the thieves at work,' explained George quickly. "'I tried to lay hands on them, but tumbled over the body of a woman on the floor, and—' "'It is Miss Ellis,' said the young doctor, looking up. "'Do you know how she came to be here?' George hesitated. He could not, for the sake of Maud's reputation, say that she had appointed a meeting with him, and did not know how to explain.' Tate noted his momentary hesitation and turned on him furiously. "'How do you come to be here?' he demanded. "'What makes you wonder about my house when everyone is in bed?' "'Ah,' said Mr. Hale, pushing his way through the frightened crowd. "'That is very suspicious. Speak out, Walker.' "'I heard a noise and came down,' cried George, making the first excuse which entered his head. "'No one else heard a noise,' remarked Sergeant, who was at Tate's elbow." I was wakeful, retorted Walker sharply, but on every hand he saw incredulous looks, and realized with a chill that he was suspected. Tate grunted and looked at the young man with a lowering brow. Who are the thieves? he demanded. How many of them are there? I saw two men, but could not catch a glimpse of their faces. I think they were masked, said George readily, and again saw disbelief written on the faces around him. But may I suggest, Mr. Tate, that you send for the police at once. The thieves made for the wood round the house and may escape. I dare say they have escaped, grunted Tate savagely. The servants are searching the gardens. 
Meanwhile, let us revive Maud and hear what she has to say. She is coming round now, said the doctor, and even as he spoke, Maud opened her eyes in a vague, unseeing way. Carry her up to bed, said Tate archly. I'll have an inquiry made into this as soon as dawn comes and the police arrive. Meanwhile, you can all retire. Mr. Walker, remain here and explain. I have explained, said George proudly. I have nothing more to add. Tate shook his head doubtfully, and whispers went round, which indicated suspicion of the truth of Walker's explanation. By this time Maud, more or less sensible, was on her feet. Her eyes wandered here and there until they alighted on the young man. You! cried Miss Ellis, with a loud wail. Oh, George, you! End of chapter 7, recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona.